As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What you say? Welcome to the All Metal Mode Podcast with your host, Michael Hare. Tune in every Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern with co-host Gypsy Jules, and every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern with Matt Hoffman as we talk to guests, discuss metal detectors, equipment, and everything treasure-related. Feel free to join in the discussion in the chat room during the show, and please, if you like what you hear, we'd appreciate you taking a moment to hit that like button and share the link with your friends. We hope you enjoy the show. The All Metal Mode Podcast starts right now. Hello, everybody. This is Mike here, and you're listening to the All Metal Mode Podcast with uh, myself and Mr. Dorian Cook. You can find us on Facebook at All Metal Mode, um, as well as All Metal Mode Podcast UK. I don't know if you listen to the UK podcast. We do every Thursday at 3 Eastern, I believe. Yes, 3 p.m. Eastern. Uh, of course, All Metal Mode is every Monday and Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, Dirt Digest Magazine, we just, uh, Sunday, yeah, that was Sunday, we launched the new uh the new uh um oh geez dorian what word am i looking for issue the new issue jiminy christmas we just <laughs> launched a new issue uh been getting some great feedback if you haven't had a chance uh check it out at dirt digest magazine.com uh we're always looking for articles um submissions if you go on the website there's uh treasure room submissions you can uh submit pictures of recent finds give a little bit of information about it and we'll we'll 
post it in that. We'll, we'll get it in the next issue. Um, it's real simple, but we're always looking for articles as well. Um, I can help you fix them up, uh, proofread them for you, whatever you need. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't forget, tell everybody about the podcast. We'd really appreciate it. Don't forget, you can find us on Course Breaker, and we, we do a live show, obviously. you can when, As we're doing it live, you can come in, join the chat. Uh, very simple to do. Once you click on the show, you'll see the bar across the bottom with the pause and all that. And if you click on that bar, there's uh, a little chat bubble, and it'll, it'll bring you into chat. You got to sign up, but I mean, you can do it through Facebook. It's a real quick process, and uh, we have some great conversations always going in the chat and stuff. So, uh, yeah, uh, let's see. Spreaker, you can download from there. You can always come back and listen to, listen to us from Spreaker. Uh, um, oh, geez, I'm trying to think here. I, I I didn't have it written down this time, and I, I'm not sure how, but uh iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and YouTube. You can find us at all them places and, and listen to us. So uh, there you go. And um, how are you doing tonight, Dorian? Yeah, I'm doing great. Good. Great. Good. I, you know, I, you I'm, really... uh, I'm excited about our subject tonight. Me too. Me too. That's what I was going to say. Did I lose you? Yeah, this is this is a, oh, this is a subject that you know it's often is overlooked, and uh, I think it's going to be important to almost everybody who uses a metal detector. Uh, that sounds maybe sounds strange, but uh, I you know I've found a number of really nice things without my metal detector, and you know not just in one particular venue, but in quite a few different types of venues that I want to talk about tonight. So, uh, Mike, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. I think we, I think we lost you for a minute or two. So yeah. I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, 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 oh, uh, yeah, I wanted to make all metal mode page. Uh, I posted pictures uh, and a bit of an article and uh, some rather interesting pictures of a massive Roman dust found. And I, I have a little backstory on how I found it. Uh, and I had to treasure hunt that dump without a metal detector because uh, you're not allowed to bring metal detectors into the country unless you have a specific permit from the Israeli Antiquities Authority, which is about as hard to get as a as a uh, personal audience with President Trump. So, um, you know, you have to put yourself to what they call surface collecting. You're not allowed to excavate even the smallest hole, even with a little pocket knife. Uh, you, you cannot excavate a hole in Israel, even, you know, I guess on your own property over there, if you have no own pro- property, uh, and you want to put in a pipe, uh, you have to get a permit just from the Israeli Antiquities Authority to legally excavate. So, uh, that can take years, frankly, unless you are really politically connected. So that's not really a viable way to go. And, uh, of course, they are, they're very generous if they give you a permit. All they ask is that basically you bear all the expense, do all the work, and then give everything you find to them. So, you know, perfectly logical and fair, right? Well, anyway, um, 
the reason that it, uh, if you haven't seen this post, please look at the pictures because what I'm detailing is that I found a Roman dump along the Mediterranean Sea near the uh, uh, partially excavated ruins of the city of Caesarea. And there's two Caesareas. Uh, this is Caesarea Maritima. Uh, it comes from the Latin word, you know, uh, or comes from the English word maritime, meaning it's on the sea. It's a, it was a port city. Uh, for those of you that are students of the Bible, it was the city where Paul, the Apostle Paul, departed for Rome from. It was built by Herod the Great, and he spared no expense. Uh, and the city is covered under a massive amount of soil, and only 15% has been excavated. So they've got 85% of the city that's still yet to be dug up, and they've spent uh, a lot of money, uh, blown their archaeological budgets uh, right out of the saddle with just what they found. You know, they've got the Colosseum excavated and open uh, for tourists, and, and quite a quite an impressive bit of ruins. Uh, they've got the horse race track, things like that. They have excavated, and they make for a wonderful, you know, uh, stop on a tour in Israel. But uh, I had I had been there twice before, and uh, I had we had a great guide. Uh, this guy had been voted the best guide in Israel, and uh, so I turned my group of twenty uh, who were there for the first time uh, over to him, and I took off down the coast along the beach. Uh, and got away from the proper ruins, so to speak. And immediately I discovered this giant vertical wall um, made out of soil and, and, and building stones and, and natural rocks and about every kind of human debris uh, that would have been found in a dump that's over 2,000 years old. It was a Roman dump. The wall was about 20 feet high, and it was nearly a mile long. If you can imagine a dump site that big. You know, I've never seen anything. The, the closest thing I've seen in the United States is a dump site along the Ohio River, some miles out of Cincinnati, Ohio. It was used uh, as a dump site by all the downtown businesses of Cincinnati from about 1850 to about 1910, I believe. So, you know, for about 60 years. And the dump uh, material is spread out along the riverbank for about maybe the length of a football field and a half, maybe 450 feet. And then it goes uh, up all the way up to the top of the riverbank from the, from the beach on down. And it's an interesting situation because um, in this Roman dump, I had learned from my previous experiences in digging dumps, sifting dumps, uh, watching others do it, being taught by others who were really great dump diggers. Uh, I knew that in every dump, you're going to find lost coins. Well, I say you're going to find them. There are lost coins in every dump. And it doesn't matter whether it's 10 years old or whether it's 2,000 years old, like this one in Caesarea. Uh, it's a given that coins were lost in the material that was put in that dump. You know, in modern times, uh, with the advent of pockets, uh, people threw away old garments and didn't check their pockets, and so old coins got thrown away. 
And uh, I certainly have, I personally worked this river site uh, that was involved with downtown Cincinnati. And I can tell you, you know, that just, it was amazing how similar it looked to this dump that I've, uh, that I found in Israel in many ways. And I, just as I found uh, silver quarters, I remember taking a flying eagle quarter just sticking out of the side of the bank along the river uh, where it had been thrown away in the dump. There was burned material all around it because they, you know, they burn, they burn stuff in those dumps to try to get rid of some of the smell of the organic material and stuff. So I decided to apply myself to a portion of that dump. And of course, I had about an hour and a half of free time before I had to get back to my group. So I began to uh, watch and I used as a cover uh, so I wouldn't draw too much attention to what I was doing. I, I had a digital camera in front of my face and there were pieces of uh, like amphora, maybe half of a wine amphora sticking out of this material, things like that. And I was taking pictures as I went. And, you know, it was just a precaution. And then sure enough, this fellow in plain clothes, who was probably mid-30s and probably was with what they call the Israeli Shin Bet, which is their internal security service. He hollers up at me. He says, hey, what are you doing? And I said, oh, look at this bank. It's full of Roman artifacts. And I'm taking pictures. Uh, this is this is wonderful. He honestly, he looked at me and kind of shook his head like dumb tourist. And just walked on, left me alone. So whether he was uh, with the government or not, um, I was glad I had the camera, and because he obviously accepted my explanation. And so as I continued to peruse this material from about four feet away and watching. Uh, as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, after about an hour and a half, I had discovered some amazing things. If you look in the pictures that I posted on All Metal, you will see a close-up shot of the mouth of a very thin, delicate Roman glass bottle. Now, it's possible, even with that glass as thin as it is, that that bottle that you see, the neck or the mouth of it, that there's a whole bottle there. And it would be quite a valuable artifact if you could excavate it. 
But see, I could not legally excavate it. I could have done it with my pocket knife, except, you know, physically I could have done it, but legally I couldn't. So it had to stay there, and I had to be satisfied with the picture. But just a few feet from it, I saw the old greenish-black color of a bronze coin sticking out of that material. And just like I pulled that flying eagle quarter out of the dump at Cincinnati, I pulled that coin out. And I thought, sure, that I had a Roman coin. And to my surprise, the coin had Islamic writing on it. So when we got uh, back to Jerusalem, uh, I consulted with our guide, and he had a brother who was in the professional coin business there in Jerusalem. So he called his brother, and his brother came over and looked at the coin and told me, he says, here in Israel, this coin will be worth about 500 American dollars. He said, in your country, he said, it'll bring about 1500 So I was quite pleased with my find. And, you know, of course, you don't want to get caught smuggling artifacts out of Israel because you might end up uh, learning what a, a Middle Eastern uh, prison or jail is all about. And you don't want to do that under any circumstances. They still got the rubber hoses in those, those places. And, you, you know, they beat you with and you don't want to go. Th- you don't want to go there. So when I got to the airport and the really tough Israeli security, uh, you know, the baskets where you put your change in, I just threw all my change, which was a mixture of U.S. and Israeli coins, and I put this Islamic coin right in the middle of them, right there in plain sight, and uh, went right on through. Nobody paid any attention, and I put it back in my pocket and came all the way to the States with it with no problems. So uh, nobody can say that I tried to smuggle the coin uh, you know, out of Israel. It was done right in plain open sight. Um, anyway, uh, I, I had to wonder, as you look at that coin, if I could find that coin in an hour and a half, and, and believe me, the more of this you do, the better you get at it. How many coins could I have found if I'd been able to hunt a full eight hours? Or maybe come back, you know, and hunt three days in a row. I had a mile-long wall, 20 feet high, with every square foot just about full of 2,000-year-old-plus artifacts, whether they were pottery shirts, pieces of bone, pieces of iron, uh, you know, the the greenish color of of bronze or brass. Uh, I saw pieces of bronze and brass. It could have been pieces of swords or whatever sticking out of this material, but I could not excavate them, see. So I had to pass on those. But no excavation was required on the coin. It just just t- took my two fingers and just pulled it right out. It's just, it was a surface find. So that being said, I want to give you a little backstory on how, you know, I came to be able to do that and find that coin. Um, there's a fellow in uh, Cincinnati, and he is one of the most impressive treasure finders that I've ever met in my life. Uh, and he's not he's not a publicity seeker. We've been trying to get him on the show. Uh, his name is Alex Camel, and I want to give you his name because I just discovered this afternoon when I was going to try to talk him into coming on the show one more time because he is one of the nation's absolute foremost experts on the subject of finding treasure without a metal detector. And I talked to his wife and discovered that he has a very serious aortic blockage in his heart, and he's scheduled for major heart surgery Thursday morning. So I would ask all of you uh, who are so inclined to keep Alex Campbell in your prayers because we don't want to lose this guy. Um, 
he is he is a, 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 a he's really a good guy and he's one of those been there done that guys uh you know if he were to seek the publicity he deserves he would be one of the legends in metal detecting but alex was the one who found this cincinnati dump and alex has walked that dump walked that shoreline and you can't metal detect there it is absolutely impossible there's millions of pieces of iron and and uh, you know you're walking uh, you, you can't avoid you're stepping on pieces of broken plates and bottles from the 1800s they're there by the hundreds of thousands of pieces on this dump and they're exposed because of the river going up and down uh, continually and also uh, the waves from the big boats that come in uh, or, or they go that ply the river up and down you know pushing coal barges and everything else that, that travels by water so Alex has walked this beach and I've walked it with him and his ability to look down in the middle of all this junk and spot coins is absolutely phenomenal, but he's done it so much. And the more you do, the better you get. Listen to this now, because this is absolutely true. In the 20 years that Alex has walked this dump regularly, several times a week, he has picked up over probably closer to 7,000 than 6,000 silver coins out of this dump by eyeballing with just his eyes. He has found four gold coins in the dump and many, many, many hundreds, literally, of gold jewelry items. Everything from rings, uh, cufflinks, anything that was made out of gold in the jewelry realm Alex has found a few of them probably on this dump site. And um, to show you that there is a skill to this, he took one of, uh, uh, one of his treasure club members uh, with him for the first time. And this guy had been seeing the things that Alex had found for many years. Uh, he would bring them to the club meetings and show them. And so he jumps out in front of Alex to, to be the first one to spot these things, see, as they walk down the beach. Well, Alex doesn't say anything. He just follows along behind him. And in about five minutes, he says, John, and he says, what? He says, look what you just stepped on. He says, what are you talking about? He says, I didn't step on anything. He says, yeah, you did. Look right there in your heel print, right there, the one I'm pointing to. Well, Alex was pointing to a $5 gold piece. Uh, this guy had walked right past it, and his heel had pushed it down into the sand. He had missed it completely. Alex spotted it instantly. And uh, he said, John said, hey, that's my coin. That's my coin. And he said, nope, that's not your coin. It could have been your coin, but you walked over top of it and left it for me. So there was a, you know, a lesson well learned. Alex wanted John to learn the lesson uh, and to understand that just because you're walking out in front of me, it doesn't make mean that you're going to find the good stuff and I'm left with nothing. Because, I see, Alex was 10 times the better hunter by sight than John was. Now, Alex, has, uh, like I said, he is one of the top people in the country in my book in finding uh, treasure without a metal detector. He does things like uh, 
when they're building new roads or something, and they're going to tear out some of these old 1800s row houses that Cincinnati's famous for. They're brick row houses. They're narrow houses. They're three or four stories high. Alice gets into those houses before they tear them down, and he goes through them, and he finds treasure. Uh, he was telling me in one, one house, he got up in the attic, and he checks out between every beam in the attic, you know, crawls around in there, uh, braves the spiders and all that stuff, uh, and, and the rats and all that. And in this one house, he got all the way to where the roof comes down to the eaves in the attic, and he can't. He can see there's kind of a lip in front of him, but he can't see down into the lip because his head won't fit into the narrow space. So he reaches down there with his hand, and immediately he feels a book. And he grabs it and pulls it out, and it's an old family Bible. And when he opens the Bible, two shiny $20 gold pieces fall out. That's the kind of thing that Alex has done hundreds of times. So this is where I got, you know, my great lessons uh, about hunting treasure without a metal detector. Uh, your mind and your eyes, when they're combined, uh, you know, together in a really alert, practice way, are amazing treasure hunting tools. Um, let's let me give you another example. Uh, Hold on I, a second, uh, Dorian. Let's let's change this up a little bit. Let's let's start talking about some of the different places you can find them. Uh, you can find, you know, where you can search without a detector and stuff like that. But before you do that, I want to jump in and I want to say something here. Um, you know, I, I often hear people, but I don't hear them. I see on social media where people, oh, I want this new detector, but I can't afford it. And I want to buy a detector, but I can't afford it. This is one of the ways you can work up find some stuff, sell it, whatever. And, and because a lot of these places have glass bottles and stuff too. There's some bottles that can be really valuable. Um, when you're talking dumps and stuff, um, there's some very, very valuable bottles and you can work up to it. There's nothing that aggravates me more than somebody whining and crying that they can't afford this detector or that detector. Um, you know, so I, I, for those people, if there would be anybody listening, there's ways to find money to to buy a detector or do other things with it. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. In fact, I was just getting to the bottles when you jumped in there. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, what I wanted to say about the bottles was that uh, you know, I, I didn't start out as a bottle digger. Um, I didn't have that much interest. Uh, I, you know, I, I was impressed with some of the old bottles I saw, but you know, I, I was all wrapped up in, in coin hunting and then, uh, then I got into relic hunting and so on. But I, I discovered, you know, when I lived up in the Cincinnati area, um, uh, that the more I got out into the wooded Hills, and the farther I got back in those hills, the more old house sites I found that had never been touched with a metal detector. Uh, that's one of the, you know, really great things. 
we have. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. There's so many hundreds of thousands of house sites that are gone that if you're willing, you know, to do the work and you might have to walk a mile or two to find you a, an untouched place. But when you find it, uh, I, I discovered that so many of these places had uh, they had bottle dumps. And in some of them, here were 1800s embossed bottles, just, you know, like some of the old patent medicines and stuff. They were there in plain sight. Uh, I found very unusual and I won't say rare, but scarce mason jars, uh, the kind that you can't find in the antique shops now. Uh, found them right there in plain sight, just just looking at me like with a big grin, saying, here I am, I've been waiting for you. And so, you know, I ended up writing an article for uh, one of the treasure magazines called Don't Pass Up One Treasure While Looking for Another. So the bottle dumps... Uh, a metal detector can be of use. If you're looking for a dump that's not visible on the surface, say they threw everything into a gully and then erosion caused dirt to cover all the visible glass and metal up. Uh, well, a metal detector, you know, of course, will scream at you if you get over a dump. Uh, the whole ground will read like one big piece of metal. So then you've got your dump. And when you've got everything covered up like that, you can use a four-foot, what they call plumber's probe, four-foot-long, uh, three-eighths of an inch diameter probe, and you can probe until you hit glass. You'll learn to hear the tink, tink, tink of broken glass, and after you you actually probe out some bottles, you'll be able to tell the difference between a, a whole bottle or a nearly whole bottle versus a piece of just broken glass. Uh, you know, and that's, that's absolutely... Uh, you get into these soft drink bottles, uh, mineral water bottles from the 1840s. Oh, some of them are beautiful. They're, they're teal green, you know, a kind of a blue green color, dark, dark, dark. And they have embossed, uh, uh, letters, uh, with exotic names of places and companies on them that are long gone. And those bottles can bring three or $4,000 on a bad day. So, 
you know, yes, uh, one of those bottles could more than set you up with a good metal detector and all the accessories. Absolutely. You know, we put it put it in an auction on eBay or something, and and so you make a good point, Mike. Uh, there are ways uh, to raise money. Uh, you know, I I know some people that just started taking their pocket change every day when they came in from work, whatever they had in change in their pocket and putting it in a mason jar and saving up until they had enough money to get their first detector. Sometimes it took them a year, year and a half. But uh, I did that actually when I bought my family kilt. Uh, when I went to Scotland and bought my family kilt, I had saved up for it. The kilt was $460, and I had taken my change every day and put it in a mason jar until I finally saved up $460 in change. And then I had the kilt maker make it for me, and on our first trip over, I picked it up. Uh, you know, so where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, that's an old saying, but it's still nevertheless totally true. Um, Dorian, I got one for you. You ever okay. stop? You ever stop by a, a rural? Oh boy, I struggle with that word. A rural, 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 rural <laughs> um, fire department and ask them if they have any houses to burn down. A lot of times, I'll let you go through them. Michael, that is an excellent suggestion. That's one I never thought of. Yep. Uh, I know somebody who got boxes of – now, this is a – I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm right, tell now, you right now. Oh, I'm getting real bad feedback, Dorian. Um, if, if you have children listening, this isn't horrible, but I do want to warn you um, – um, the children should not be listening right now, although I don't think it's horrible. But I, if, if you're protective of your kids, if you've got young kids, please don't let them listen here for a minute. Found boxes and boxes of uh, nude photographs of women. Here he was a professional photographer. And we're talking like... Uh, I'm going to say thirties to fifties was probably the latest and they were worth a fortune. Um, and just, it was, it was the fire department had it. It was theirs to burn and all that. And, uh, stopped and asked, Hey, you guys got any houses? Yeah, you can go through it, take anything out, out of it you want. And, uh, so that's a, a good, a good thing. Uh, we did, I actually got to metal detect a couple of them like that. And uh, one of them, we went in, uh, he had permission for us to go into it. And I want to say we found an Indian in one of the vents. This was an 1800s house. Um, they told us we can do anything we want. We could take anything, rip walls, and they didn't care. Uh, and if I remember right, we ripped down some of the, in the, the, basement we'd rip down some of the the um oh what do you call it the the uh i, I want to say conduit but that's not it for the the heat heating the heating duct there we go gee many christmas we'd rip some of that down if i remember right out of the one vent uh in the elbow we'd found uh i think it was an indian but yeah those are great places to look and explore absolutely oh, Good point. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, I know that sometimes uh, I remember one of the um, uh, flying places I call it. 
was uh, on a ranch west of Fort Worth uh, at the time of living in Dallas, running a landscape business. And this ranch had uh, these really unusual boulder outcroppings. They were called honeycomb rock because they were full of holes, these big white limestone boulders. And they were really beautiful, and people loved to have them in their yards and build rock walls out of them and stuff. So we would buy them from the farmers for you know a small price, and then we would haul them back to Dallas. And uh, I discovered that uh, on this one ranch, I ran across a root cellar in the ground. Uh, the house place was long gone. Would have loved to have come back and metal detected, never got to. But I looked down into this root cellar, and there were maybe 200 different kinds of mason jars with whatever they had been can- they canned with was still in them. And they were down inside this root cellar all overgrown with weeds and everything. And you didn't dare go down in there because of the rattlesnakes. Oh, that really hurt me to leave all those mason jars because there wasn't a one in there that probably wouldn't have brought a $10 bill. At least a $10 bill. And some of them would have probably been, you know, worth hundreds. And who knows how long they'd been there, at least since the turn of the century, early 1900s, you know, or late uh, 1800s. Uh, heard about uh, had a fellow, uh, a house hunter in Cincinnati got into a basement, and all four walls were lined with these with mason jars, and he ended up, uh, you know, he had to go through the uh, unpleasantness of opening and dumping all the contents, but uh, he got a small fortune in, in, in different kinds of unusual mason jars. For those of you that might not be into bottles or don't know a lot about bottles. You know, there's different categories. There's poison bottles, what they call patent medicines, you know, which are the old uh, cork stopper bottles. A lot of them are kind of a light blue-green color. Uh, a lot of them are clear, and they have embossed, embossed outrageous uh, 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 titles on them, like Dr. Dr. Feelgood's Conchagula, you know, for asthma and, 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 and dropsy and stuff like that. Uh, almost defies the imagination. It's, it's fun just to read all these different uh, concoctions that were once sold, but you, you can get into those. But mason jars, there's about 1,200 different mason jars that you can collect. Uh, the ones at the top end of the scale uh, are bringing over $10,000 a piece now. Hmm. You know, so, yeah, there, that's another type of treasure hunting without a metal detector you can do. Uh, even uh, you can sell the zinc lids that go on them. You know, I, I, I've eyeballed a lot of those. Of course, you can metal detect and everybody's dug up a few of those. But those, you know, those will bring uh, 2 or $3 a piece now in the flea markets. And uh, there's not a mason jar going now that won't bring at least five and, and usually more like 10. Try to find one in a, in, a, in a flea market or antique shop that you can buy for less than 10 now. You know, you, even the most common ones. Uh, are bringing that kind of money, but anyway, did you, uh, did you say a mason jar worth ten grand? Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's more than one. Yeah, really. Yeah, there's mason. Well, let me say this. You know, uh, there's been a lot of reproductions of rare mason jars. Mm-hmm. So if you find one uh, in the color I'm going to mention here. You've got to be careful because it's, it's kind of like those Confederate belt buckles with a bullet in them. You know, most of them are fake. Mm. And uh, 
if you can find one of the cobalt blue jars that was made in the 1800s, mid 1800s, uh, you've got a real keeper. Uh, if I had one, you know, I would expect, and I wanted to sell it, and it was in great shape. I would expect it to bring three to four thousand uh, dollars, depending on what the embossing was on it. Uh, but there are other jars, and I am not up to date because I had to quit collecting mason jars. I was collecting mason jars, poison bottles, patent medicines, and I ended up with my, my garage full of, of these bottles from, from bottom to top. <laughs> and my wife kind of said, you know, you're going to have to choose, uh, make a choice, me or the bottles. And I said, well, honey, I'm really going to miss you, you know. Yeah, right. No, I, I didn't say that. I got got rid of the bottles. So I keep I, a few special bottles around. I probably have a total now instead of 1,200 bottles in my garage. I've, I've probably got about uh, 30 or 40 real keepers in the house and on the mantle, places like that. I got and we a, still have, uh, I have some rather uh, scarce mason jars on the bookshelf. And I still use them to collect my pocket change. You know, we still save our pocket change. I got a great mason jar story for you. A little bit off the subject. I was at an auction probably six, seven years ago, and it was right across the street from where I lived. And it was in town, but they had a big lot and uh, a big lot. Matter of fact, there there was a, a house or two had been torn down that, that belonged to this property in town. So you can imagine it was a pretty good sized lot now. And they, the whole area was full of mostly glass, like uh, glass jars or, you know, like the fancy glass, like uh, candy dish stuff, you know. Well, I don't know anything about glass, not interested. I walked in the house to see what was going on. They had two auctioneers going. Everybody was out back with that glass. I bought a pickup truck. And I mean a full-size long bed pickup truck full of mason jars for $7. And when I say mason jars, I mean the old zinc lids. Ninety, Probably 95% of them were green or blue. There were Atlas, um, Mason, I, I mean, you name it. There were ones I'd never heard of, but... I, although I kept a couple, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a materialistic person. I'm not somebody that likes a bunch of stuff. I loaded them up and took them down to my sister-in-law who, who does canning. And, uh, I gave her, uh, about a truckload of, of Mason jars. So you probably would have been in heaven there. Oh, wow. <laughs> all kinds yeah. of, all kinds of different names and like I said, green and blue, I don't, I think there might, I don't know. I, I know green and blue was most of them. Most of them even were blue, but so, but they were all old. They all had the zinc lids, not nothing, or even the snap over lids, you know, the glass lid with the rubber and then the, the metal right. uh, snap over things. A lot of them were that. Um, well, for the, just, just for a little bit of a hint of people who are not going to go to the trouble to become bottle experts. Uh, when you're out and about, you know, and you're doing a flea market or an antique shop or whatever, the colors you want to look for are golden amber, uh, a brown, um, apple green, uh, and cobalt blue. Those those colors, if you find a mason jar and it's not a reproduction, and it should be, you know, it should give you some information on the bottom of the jar. It should have some numbers and things that, that aren't right for an old jar. 
uh, should be able to recognize a repro mm-hmm. without too much difficulty. But if, if you can find those, any, any mason jars, and there's a number in those colors, uh, if you can pick them up at a reasonable price, uh, you know, if you can pick them up for uh, under $20, you should be in good shape as far as having something that's worth quite a bit more than you paid. We're kind of getting off the subject here a little bit. Let's talk about some more places. I'll tell you one that's really good that Matt that Matt actually talked about once on All Metal Mode on Monday Night Show, I should say, was like parking lots. And at the back of parking lots, you know, if there's woods or fence, he's found money up against, uh, I think he'd found money either in the woods or it was up against a fence or something, but uh, like at a big Walmart center. And I've heard of that. I've heard of people, not only that, I told you a story earlier about a guy that, that uh, was was telling Steph that he'd lost a few hundred dollars out of his car, blew away, and uh, couldn't couldn't get it down. Well, you know that went somewhere. I you know always keep your eyes open. Absolutely, uh, uh, that was one of the things that my friend Alex did also with great success. He walked those parking lots. He looked for chain link fences. You know, he always knew the, the the general around here. The general wind direction is south southwest to northeast, and uh, so he would follow that direction across the parking lots. And um, he told me that I, I think he told me one day he picked up two hundred and forty dollars in in currency, not all in one spot, but he walked uh, you know several hundred yards of fence and parking lot boundary. But uh, when he was done, he said he had over two hundred and forty dollars in currency. That's pretty good for a you know a couple hours of of, of work. Absolutely. Uh, so, Mike, that's an excellent point. That is absolutely a form of treasure hunting without a metal detector. Mm-hmm. Um, another form of treasure hunting without a metal detector, and I actually do this with a metal detector, but the metal detector has nothing to do with my finds, other than it puts me on the site. And that is Indian artifacts, surface finds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I have until I I won't say I didn't have any artifacts. I had two or three cases that I'd picked up in Texas and places on various treasure hunts. But uh, when I got up here in uh, Kentucky and started doing the house sites in the old bean fields, you know, the soybean fields, uh, I discovered that almost all of these house sites are built on or very close to. Uh, Indian artifact sites where the Indians camped. And uh, in the last eight years, barely taking the bean fields, say within a 50-mile circle of my house, I have picked up over 500 Indian arrowheads and and related artifacts, drills, things like that, really nice artifacts, uh, while I was out metal detecting, but found them by eyeballing them. And the more, you know, I trained my eyes to be watching the ground while swinging my detector because I don't need to watch the ground where I'm detecting. You know, my earphones will tell me if I'm over top of metal. So you can actually do two things at once. Right. And uh, in in these fields, you want to look for the ridges in the field, the high ground. The Indians understood drainage. And the Native Americans, and they would they would camp on the ridge lines in these fields. There's always a part of a field that seems to be a little higher than the other. That's where you want to go, just like a homing missile. You want to go to that ridge and check the top of it and, and both sides of the slope. 
you also want to pay special attention to erosion channels. And uh, shallow creeks and riverbanks are always good, too, for spotting Indian artifacts. Uh, if you're interested in that, there's plenty of YouTube videos of guys that are doing that. And it's kind of good to watch some of those and see what these artifacts look like when they're laying in there amongst the gravel. I had an expert Indian artifact hunter tell me, he says, do you think it's really easy to find Indian arrowheads in a creek? He says, take six broken arrowheads and walk down to your creek. And, and he says, look straight ahead and toss them back over your shoulder into the gravel behind you. And he said, now see how long it takes you to find those. And you will know that they're there. You have that advantage. But see how long it takes you to find those and see how hard it is to see those. He says, you really have to train your eyes to spot, you know, the the artifact shapes when you're That's dealing a with. Great, great idea. Yeah. I, I do not have an eye for it. I, I will openly admit that I've been out metal detecting with my eyes to the ground and been out with a. Uh, a friend of mine that does it quite regularly and he will just spot them right where I was. It's like, how did I miss that? Cause I am always looking. You're, you're absolutely right. While you're metal detecting those fields, you might as well. And you know, where you find early homesteads, you're oftentimes going to find native American artifacts because the, you know, for example, Ohio, you know, which was heavily settled by Native Americans. The first settlers to the area, you know, the Indians are starting to head head out west, Indiana and farther. What do you think they left behind? They left down, you know, uh, they were working the fields. They were farming it and stuff. They'd taken down trees. Well, why wouldn't you settle there? You know, so oftentimes you're going to find when you're relic hunting in the field, you're you're right on top of Native American artifacts as well. Absolutely. They go hand in hand. And, Absolutely. Uh, I'll tell you what, it's, I am aware uh, of having gone, I've gone to a few Indian artifact shows in this area and I've met some top hunters and stuff. And I am aware of hundreds of thousands of artifacts that have been pulled out of the fields here in Kentucky in the past, let's say 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Now it's, a, it's illegal in Kentucky now, isn't it? No, not no. It's not. It's illegal to surface out in Ohio. It is not in Kentucky. It is illegal to dig graves in Kentucky. So you can't hunt for Indian artifacts in Ohio anymore. I'm told that if they catch you walking a field, even if you don't have any artifacts, that they'll arrest you. Uh, so, and I do know that the hunters on YouTube that that do the riverbank here, the Ohio riverbanks, they only hunt the Kentucky side. Yikes. Didn't know I mean, that. that's what that's what I'm seeing, you know, in the way of a pattern. Uh, I do not know. I have not inquired as to the official, you know, law on Ohio, because frankly, I've got my hands full with places to hunt Indian artifacts in Kentucky. I don't need Ohio. Right, right. You know, there's only so many trips you can make. And if you've got good sites, why, you know, why spin your wheels? taking on more than you can really cover. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're all excited here in Kentucky because last year was so wet that the farmers had to harvest the soybeans wet 
The fields were wet. They made huge ruts in the field. And ordinarily, they're doing this no-till uh, planting, you know, where they, they don't they don't break the ground. They don't disc it. They don't plow it. Right. Uh, and I predicted when I saw the ruts they left in their fields, I said, they're going to have to at least deep disc, if not plow these fields. And guess what? They almost every one within 50 miles that I've checked plowed or disked his field. Uh, and they were in a hurry because of all the rain we were having. So they got them planted too quick for us to get in the fields in the spring. So we're just waiting until this uh, the beans are harvested because we're going to be on fresh ground. It's going to be just disc this past spring. And there ought to be some really killer Indian artifacts come out of these fields this fall. Mm, yeah. Not that we're relic hunted uh, house sites. You ought to see some uh, new stuff coming up. Absolutely. And, uh, and then, you know, I, I think all of us that metal detect have actually spotted coins and things before we run our detectors over them on some of these old sites. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, for sure. And I think one time I, I, well, I, I say that most of us have, I haven't so much. I evidently do not have an eye for anything. I went to dig a good signal once, and as I started to kneel down, I see the large scent. But I do know, I, I am aware of people who, especially Indian artifact hunters, who have found silver coins and stuff um, laying on the ground. Which, if you can find one who doesn't metal detect, they will share with you where they've come across brick and pottery and stuff like that. So Yeah, and good point, Mike. And and, and, you know, if I can back up just a second, I mentioned that big Cincinnati dump. Well, think of all the river towns. Some of them have come and gone. Some of them are still there. But think of all these river towns, not just on the Ohio River, but any big river that you, you are near, wherever you are, there's going to be dump sites all along that river. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you're diligent and do a little research, you, you could probably find you, even a small town dump site, could be a real bonanza. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Because remember, 
when you're on a riverbank, every time the water goes up and down, it's virgin territory. You start all over mm-hmm. with surface finds. So that's one of the advantages of being a bank hunter. Yeah. Um, my brother's got property on the Muskingum, and I was t- uh, s- saying earlier that there was, he's found, I know a couple bottles, but how many I don't know, but he's he's just been going down the river in a boat and seen a bottle and jumped out and got it. And I know he's got uh, at least one or two really good embossed bottles. Yeah, good point, Mike. And, and here's another possible find. Uh, this one, again, was made by Alex, the guy I was mentioning earlier. Um, you know, back in the 1800s, Cincinnati had cobblestone streets. And I don't mean just like the red brick paving you see commonly that came you know, it was done by the CCC and people like that back in the in the 30s and 40s and all that. I'm talking about granite cobblestones that are kind of a whitish, uh, black speckled, you know, that are big, heavy things, rough, rough cut. Um, those things, uh, when they tear any street up in Cincinnati where they paved or something and they take out the cobblestones, uh, everybody's clamoring for those. They, they want them. Uh, the stone companies that sell decorating stone and boulders and stuff to landscape companies and, and, and people, uh, if they can get a pile of these cobblestones, you know, uh, they're probably by now, I haven't checked the price in a few years, but they're probably bringing five to $6 a piece. Mm-hmm. Alex, uh, exploring along the riverbank, the Ohio riverbank, about probably a couple of miles from where the big, this big dump was found, found an entire where dump trucks had backed up and dumped a huge pile of these things right into the river, right at the edge, and they were mm. sticking out of the water in a big mound. Mm. There were several thousand of these granite cobblestones. Yeah. You know, so he started coming down in a pickup truck, you know, and taking them out, a pickup load at a time. Uh, and he had no trouble at all uh, selling them quick sale for at the time for three dollars a piece. Wow! So see that that's another one. This is my you know my point when you when you put on the old thinking cap and you're aware of your surroundings, uh, things that never appeared to you to be treasure before can suddenly become treasure. Absolutely. And you follow any creek or river long enough, you're going to find a dump. Eventually, you're going to find a dump. Yeah, you are. And and it's you know you you might find coins. You might you're going to find bottles. That's what mostly ended up in those dumps. In my experience, I'm sure other things have ended up in them, but uh, you you can find coins and everything else that got dumped out as well. You can, and you want to check, if you have access to a boat, uh, you want to check your islands in the river, especially after the water's gone up and back down again. Now, the rivers the rivers are funny. The Ohio River's funny. One time it comes up and goes down, and it leaves a foot-thick uh, layer of gooey mud over everything and just ruins any, you know, any, any serious hunting the banks for anything. Then the next time it comes up, it takes the mud completely away, leaves big erosion ditches in the bank that expose whatever's in there. Uh, and it's just perfect. You know, uh, that, 
and uh, the, the, I hit it just right after having totally bombed out because of the mud the previous time I was there. Uh, this was uh, maybe a month later, and I hit it right after another big flood, and it just removed all of this mud and left a nice clean layer of beach sand with erosion channels in it. And uh, I was killing a little time while I was waiting for a local mechanic to be available to work on my car. So I went to this site and I picked up nine perfect arrowheads in an hour and a half. Wow. Uh, you know, caught the conditions just right. Now, it was interesting because I took one of our, uh, our new uh, group members, James Ryan, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And we went to this same site. And I was telling him, I said, you know, we're, we're going to find something good. We always find something good. And to my amazement, for the first time out of maybe two or three dozen times I've been on this site, the river had put two feet of just regular old beach sand on top of everything. Hmm. And it was to find any flint at all. And we didn't find one single arrowhead. We did find some flint tools and scrapers and things. But that was the first time I had never found at least, you know, an arrowhead or two when I went on this site. So the river's a fickle mistress. You know, she, uh, she can push, put, uh, put kisses on you one time and kick your butt the next. Very true. But nonetheless, those who persevere are going to come off with some really great finds. And by the way, while you're on the riverbank, when, when, while we're talking uh, treasure, one of the great things like the Ohio River is driftwood. It will take pieces of, of wood, pieces of lumber, and it will tumble them through floods and bring them down the river who knows how many miles, maybe hundreds of miles. They could, you know, and here's a beautiful piece of wood that has been all rounded off, and it is absolutely perfect for craft sign making. You know, and, and I mean, these pieces you can find, you, you could go down along the river in a boat uh, that has some carry capacity or maybe even pull a little, you know, rubber raft or something that, that could carry stuff, and you could get a load of this driftwood uh, and, and sell it to people that do arts and craft signs because it would be, they make beautiful signs. I've got a couple that I've made on my place from the Ohio river and you'll, you'll find these big, uh, I guess they're pieces of tree stumps or something, but they're like giant wooden eggs. They can be three feet long and, you know, 18 inches thick in the middle. And they're perfectly shaped like an egg all, you know, naturally kind of sanded by the action of having tumbled, you know, down the sands and the beach and all that stuff and in the water. Uh, and when it comes to big rivers like the Ohio, the Mississippi, whatever, it is possible to find anything that's ever been lost on a riverbank. You can find a boat that was washed up on the last flood, broke loose. And, you know, uh, I've seen everything from John boats to you name it, uh, that can be classed as river salvage. Mm -hmm. Right. Rivers are amazing place, amazing place. They really are. Now, Mike, I'd like to switch gears for a minute and talk Civil War relics. Okay. Uh, and I want to talk metal Civil War relics. Okay. You say, well, okay, well, why would we need to hunt or, or metal Civil War relics without a metal detector? Hmm. Well, you know, because some places it, it is not appropriate or even legal to use a metal detector. Uh, but if you happen to be touring some of the Civil War battlefields and 
I do this as a mental exercise because it's a victory. It's a, it's a mental victory for me. They're not going to let me use a metal detector to find artifacts. <coughs> and if I find an artifact, you know, legally you have to turn it into the park. Okay. I'm you know, willing to do that because if I find an artifact, I am the discoverer of that artifact, and there's a certain satisfaction in that for me. I'm not there to – I didn't come to tour the park, you know, looking for treasure, so to speak. But while I'm there and I'm walking among the cannons and the monuments and all of this stuff, I look for bare patches of ground. When I was at Vicksburg, there was an old sunken road through part of the battlefield with banks that were steeply sloped, but they were only about oh, feet high on both sides. And all the uh, uh, weeds were kept uh, off of the banks, and there had been erosion, and about maybe two-thirds of the dirt on both banks was bare. So I stood on one bank, and I just studied the other bank, which was right across from me about 25, 30 feet, until I spotted some white dots. Then I went over, got down, went over, walked up the road, and pulled the mini balls that I had spotted with my eyes right out of the bank. Mm. Then I went up the top of that bank and looked back at the other bank, found a couple more. And so, you know, uh, basically, you know, you turn the mini balls into the park headquarters and say, I found these while I was out walking the trail. Oh, and before uh, I got done that day, uh, the kids like to play on the cannons. And so their little their little feet scuff all the grass away around the cannons, and you have these big bare spots of dirt that they're sitting in. So I went over to one cannon and just kind of leaned down and studied the ground, and there was a Civil War percussion cap. Uh, you know, that had been on the musket of some Civil War soldier in the, in the Battle of Vicksburg, and he had fired that uh, – uh, his rifle and threw away that used percussion cap and it had been exposed by these kids playing around the cannon. So always when you're on a historical site, always pay attention to areas of bare dirt. You may look at a hundred in a row and not find a single coin or artifact, but if you keep doing it the 101st or the 110th or the 130th, you're going to hit something that you're going to be very pleased with. Yeah, I agree. I've never, never, I don't even think I've ever been to a battle site. I don't think, or at least not civil war, but I can't imagine. Now, you know, I can't remember who was telling me, but somebody recently was telling me that uh, where the, they've got the battle uh, of the little bighorn, that that's wrong. Do you know anything about that? I wish I could remember who told me that. Uh, Mike, that was Keith Wills. Uh, was Keith, it on the podcast? Yeah, Keith actually went out there and, and, and detected on the battlefield. He worked with the the the, uh, the metal detectors out there that helped the Park Service. Oh, man, how cool would that be? So, yeah, it's... Uh, you know, there's a to me there's a lot of pleasure in in discovery. Um, it's it, it's I always thought that hey, you know, I'll have my artifact collection and I'll use it to to teach kids at schools when I put on presentations and things like that. And then you know when it comes time 
for me to go to my great reward or whatever, I'll just donate my artifacts to a good museum. And, you know, we've recently had a thread on our, on our group page about the difficulty in donating to a museum, but that, that, that almost would make a whole program in itself. And I don't want to get into that, you know, but I'm just saying it's not as easy to donate artifacts, uh, as you might think. And many times you don't want to. It's not a good thing. Yeah, just the policies are so confusing. They vary from museum to museum. Uh, and what everybody has discovered, uh, several people that have made major donations, was that the museum turned around and sold everything they donated to, to private collectors to raise money to buy something else. Yeah, so, a lot of stuff know, gets, gets uh, sold off with museums. Lost destroyed i mean right i I once uh talked to a guy that uh volunteered at a little local museum and years earlier him him and his uncle had donated hundreds upon hundreds of of uh native artifacts off of their their family farm to the Ohio Historical Society. Now, we're not talking a little, you know, a little town thing here. And he went back, uh, like, within 10 years, I believe, to, to see him. And they, they didn't know. They Most likely, they got sold off is the best that they could tell him. Um, he was really disappointed. But years later, he started volunteering at, at his little local historical society and he said it'd make you sick. They they had a flood down in the basement. A bunch of stuff was ruined. Um, they they oftentimes will sell stuff off that they they're no longer interested in or having. And how sad is that? Could you imagine having, you know, one time I had a bunch of artifacts for a, a town that was gone by 1832, and I was going to donate them. And I just didn't get a good feeling. They they didn't seem real interested, and and it just left a bad taste in my mouth. So I was rethinking that. But you know, from my standpoint, I feel like that stuff belongs in a museum. But uh, you know, after talking to other people about that, I'm glad I didn't donate that stuff. It sounds like you know, most likely it would have disappeared. Somebody would have taken it home. It would have got. Um, sold off or whatever. And, and I don't want that to happen to my, my stuff. I, I have no problem donating, uh, to the right place, you know, that would appreciate it and keep it and not sell it off and stuff. But, uh, not like that. Yeah. Like well, that. anyway, before we get too far off, off subject, we want to get back to treasure hunting. Uh, you know, another thing that, um, maybe, maybe the women would, would be more interested in this than the guys, the um, um, you can pick up some reference books without, I think, breaking the budget too bad uh, on basic uh, glassware, like you find in antique shops and flea markets. And I would at least take the time to try to go through a reference book like that and pick out. Well, let me give you an example with Indian artifacts. Uh, I know enough about Indian artifacts to know that the most coveted points are those from what they call the Clovis culture. 
the Clovis points. Uh, I have a general understanding that the cheap Clovis points on a bad day can bring $800 a piece. The really good museum grade Clovis points, and they are found in our area. They're found on the banks of the Ohio River occasionally. They're found in Mason County, uh, Kentucky, and other places. Uh, some of these pieces bring up over $40,000 each to collectors. So my point is, if you don't educate yourself just a little, you may walk right by a treasure and not even realize it. If I was going to look for treasures in glass, like I mean, I'm not talking about bottles now. I'm talking about plates and cups and things like that. I would, uh, you know, study some of the, you know, on the bottom of a cup or a plate, there's a maker's has a kind of a trademark. And uh, I would I would try to, to pick out some of the early trademarks, like from the 1700s, early 1800s, and familiarize myself so that if I saw a piece somewhere that had that trademark, I would know that it was a valuable antique. And if I could obtain it, you know, at, at, at what they call uh, fire sale prices, then I would do it. Uh, but let me give you a tip if you're going to do that kind of thing. It's, you've got to play the odds here. And the odds are you're not going to find that uh, really great uh, rare piece for $3 in an antique shop. You want to go into the junk shops. I mean, where they're, you know, not everything is not neatly organized on little doilies. You know, the place is kind of dirty. Uh, stuff stacked everywhere. There's boxes of junk, stuff like that. That's where you find those kind of treasures. Uh, because the guy or whoever runs the place, he doesn't really care enough uh, to go do all the work, to go through all that stuff in minute detail to know exactly what he can get for every piece. He'll arbitrarily say, okay, you know, uh, you say, well, how much is this old bugle here? You know, he says, will you give me 20 bucks? You know, and you're looking at this bugle, and it's a Civil War bugle. And it's obvious from the dents and dings and the patina that it's not a reproduction. 20 bucks? Yes, sir, I will. I'll give you 20 bucks in a heartbeat. So he's happy. He made 20, and you walk out of there with a $300 bugle, you see. But like I said, it's the old junk shops, uh, not the not the neat uh, antique shops, and especially if you walk into uh, an antique shop that's selling old stuff and you want to find a treasure, look first around where the owner or whoever's running the store, look around the cash register in the area where they work and sit. And if you see reference books on antiques and things, then get out of that store. Because they know, they've gone through, they've checked every piece in there, and your odds against finding anything really valuable in that store uh, are are not very good at all. So, see, that's another way, though, that you can you can look for treasure, uh, and it doesn't have to be glass. It could be anything that's sold. It could be old signs that hang on barns. You know, it could be. Uh, there's collectors, what we call collectibles. Right. I, I know, uh, I've got a friend who goes around to, uh, 
just anywhere and everywhere looking for glass. He knows glass very well. That's that's all he really knows. And he will pick up pieces from wherever, wherever he can get his hands on them, and he'll turn around and sell them and make, make really good money. Um, he's not making a living, but, boy, he sure brings in a lot of extra money. I, I know of other people who do clocks and grandfather clocks and different, you, you know, I think if you're going to do something like that um, and you're not familiar with it, didn't grow up with it or something, you know, uh, you're not real knowledgeable when it comes to antiques and collectibles, I would suggest uh, studying one particular thing that's obtainable. You know, you don't want to look for something that's, you know, and, and study up on something that's not obtainable, but stick to one subject, stick to glass or a certain, even a certain kind of glass or, you, you know, that kind of thing. Wouldn't you agree for somebody who doesn't know? Uh, yes, but if I, if I could add one thing that Mike it would be that uh, be a little bit familiar with different you know, uh, uh, what goes on in your state. For example, there are certain towns in Kentucky that, that they just specialize, I mean, almost in antique stores. And uh, if you go there, you'll have 15, 20 antique stores. You know, Portsmouth, Ohio's got a lot of antique stores right down by the river. Uh, the more stores you have, the more competition you have to make a sale. And... When you see you're in the midst of a town or you found a town in your area, if you decided you want to try to find something that you can resell in, in your local antique or vintage shops, as they call them, or secondhand shops, then try to find where there's a cluster of them. Because, like I said, they're all competing, and you're more likely going to find people that don't want you to walk out of their store without buying something. And so if you... Uh, you know, one of my favorite techniques is, well, you know, you really got a nice store, you know, and uh, you start to walk out and then you stop at something you've already noticed. And you say, oh, look at this, you know, uh, you've got a $30 price tag. Would you take 20 on this? You'd be surprised how many times they'll say yes. Uh, because they want to make a sale. A good merchant doesn't want you leaving his store without buying something. And if he has to take less money, if he's a good merchant, he'll do it. The person that won't come off a dollar on anything, you know, just, just to say, have a nice day and walk out and go to another shop. Right. I agree. I, I do not know antiques or anything, but, um, but like I said, you might, if if you like, for example, let's say the ladies one one of your let's say one of your listeners, uh, one of the ladies says, you know, I'd really like to get into uh, uh, you know buying and selling uh, antique plates or cups. Well, what she wants to do then is research and find where uh, is the area in her state or in her surrounding, say within a two hundred mile circle. What area would have the most opportunities to find an old cup or a plate? You know, and don't waste time hitting every little town along the road in that sense. 
but but focus focus your research. Research is a key to any type of treasure hunting, whether metal detector or whatever all the other stuff we're talking about. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. You know, uh, there's an area that uh, I wanted to hunt in another state, and it's just been so dense in underbrush and foliage, and it's got it's got rattlesnakes in it. And uh, I don't mind rattlesnakes as long as the ground is fairly open and you can see in front of you. But when you're having to walk through brush and you can't see two feet in front of you where your feet are going, it's not good. Even if you got snake guards, it's no fun to get struck. Right. And uh, I went back recently and checked the Google satellite of this particular place. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus and guess what i discovered What's up? there had been a there had been a forest fire mike and the whole area has, had burned off oh wow and see that could be a real game changer So an area that's not not accessible, you know, today could be accessible two days from now because it burned off. Right, right, absolutely. Uh, another thing uh, we haven't talked about is magnet fishing. Uh, yeah, that's I'm another ready, good one. Yeah, I'm, and I'm getting ready to actually get into that a little bit. Uh, we're going to start magnet fishing. For Civil War artifacts, uh, working a project where we think um, 1,200 Springfield rifles were thrown into a river and uh, got it narrowed down really good. And if I'm right, we should be pulling up some rifles our first day out on the site. So we're going to try that. Uh, magnet fishing, you know, one of the things. I guess if there's a single spatial place that you would want to focus on, it would be uh, bridges. Uh, because bridges is where people throw. They throw guns. They throw coin collections. Uh, they throw things they want to get rid of off of bridges. <laughs> now, yeah, granted, you know, you're not going to pull point. up. On Pardon? I said that's a really good point. Um, uh, yeah, and there's, you know, they throw junk off bridges too, of course, but, uh, uh, again, you know, magnet fishing is like metal detecting the sense that not every target you dig is a keeper, but 
if you dig enough targets or you pull up enough metal, then you're going to hit something good. Uh, it's not uncommon for magnet fishermen who've got some experience to actually latch on to small safes or even a big safe. Uh, I've got a partner that I'm, that's going to help me on this. Uh, he's got in his head that, you know, uh, the more it will lift, the better. And I, and I'm telling him, no, we don't, we don't need to do that. You know, a, a Springfield rifle weighs 10 pounds. All we need to do is, is have a magnet that'll pull 30 or 40 pounds. And, uh, you know, we can lift a rifle off the bottom of the river. Uh, well, what if it's under the, you know, under the mud three or four feet? I said, well, we're not going to get it if it's under the mud three or four feet. But I told him, I said, let's start, let's start small Let's, you know, let's, let's max out. I let him, I let him buy a 75 pound pole magnet. Now, a 75 pound pole magnet, if you get your fingers between a piece of metal and that magnet, you're going to have injured fingers. So, you know, the, that is the danger you have to be careful of. You, you have to be aware. It's, it's, it, it's a, it's a hazard. Uh, just like there's certain things, you know, you got to be, be careful. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, a lot of us used to use screwdriver probes. We get these long, thin, thin screwdrivers that had eight or nine inch shaft on them and then uh, round the tip of them on a grinder so that they, they wouldn't tend to damage the coin with sharp corners. And we use them for probes and digging tools. And uh, I can tell you this, I stuck one all the way through my, my opposite index finger. I got in too much of a hurry. Yikes. And buddy, I, I nailed myself. So there's always hazards, you know, when you're using uh, sharp edge tools and things like that. And the same thing with magnets. Uh, you don't know, you know, you can pull up old syringes and things like that. that so you have to be careful. But still, uh, nobody said that hunting treasure, you know, was always going to be a walk in the park. Uh, sometimes risks have to be taken, but risk that can be managed your risk that, that if you're diligent and you're cautious, uh, the odds against you being injured, uh, from that risk are extremely small. And that's what you do. Uh, in that regard, Mike, uh, when you, uh, were out detecting old house sites, I assume that of course you, you don't do just, field sites where the house is gone. Uh, if you can get permissions around old houses or old structures, you do those too, right? Right. Okay. Let me ask you something. Have you ever, uh, have you ever done barn searches for, uh, artifacts and things with a metal detector or just looking around? Uh, just looking around. Yes. Yes, I have. And, uh, did you come up with anything good? Well, I don't remember anything, so evidently not, or at least not much. I, uh, of course, I know this is more in the Civil War territory, but uh, if you have access to a standing barn that, uh, and you can go in and look at the timbers, if they're hand-hewn timbers, it could date back to the Civil War. It could have just had new roofs put on it and new siding, but the frame could be, you know, identified as being pre-Civil War or that period. Uh, guys, uh, I know guys that have found swords stuck, you know, in the, in, uh, between the, 
the boards and the and 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 the posts that hold up the barn uh, are are just hanging, you know, on pegs or something along the walls here and there. Uh, they found swords, bayonets, because a lot of times the farmers would use these tools in their harvesting. They turned swords into corn knives and stuff like that. So barn finds, you know, of course we uh, we think of barn finds by what we see on uh, television, YouTube about these guys that go out and find the old cars in a barn. Of course, that's another type of treasure hunting without a metal detector, isn't it? Uh, and that's something that you. That's something that you can always be on the lookout for, uh, you know, in your travels and your searches. Are any potentially old classic cars or something that somebody would pay good money for that they could restore? Uh, and to that end, you know, I would I would find a contact, somebody who's really good in that particular field that you could uh, run your finds by and let him tell you if it's if if, if it's worth pursuing. He might be able to help you sell it. You know, he or she might be able to help you sell your barn find because uh, I have certainly found old abandoned cars around old abandoned sites. But, you know, I never really gave much thought at the time to them being actually a part of a growing market. Because a lot of those older cars, you know, like the old 53 Chevy pickups, Man, they had so much metal in them. You can take one out of a field that's absolutely, totally brown rust, and you can sand that rust off, and you'll have good metal, and you can repaint it and restore it to look exactly like new. But you're not going to have that happen on a modern pickup because the metal's too thin, and it rusts away too quickly. Yeah, but that's, that's absolutely all true. And even even car parts and stuff, I've. I'm pretty familiar with cars, and uh, yeah, there's a lot yeah, of stuff. There's a lot of stuff out. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's everything, you know, from trade blankets to, uh, well, you just let your imagination run wild, really. You know, trade blankets, marbles, uh, buttons. Do you know, uh, again, the antique stores, if they have a jar of buttons, they want to sell you a mason jar full of buttons. I'll guarantee you it's been gone through and they looked for Civil War buttons. Mm. But you go to an estate sale and buy a jar of buttons. Oh, yeah, we didn't even mention estate sales, Mike. Estate sales, right. can, estate sales can be fantastic places to find treasure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the goal of everybody there, I mean, the owners uh, and the auctioneers is to move that stuff, to get rid of it, get it gone. And, uh, you know, another place to give you an example, I missed out on a treasure. I did government auctions for a while. I would go to uh, Wright Pat Air Force Base up in Dayton and go to the government auctions. And uh, you would get a chance about three days before the auction to go and preview everything that was going to go up for sale. Well, in this one particular auction, there was this... Uh, I don't know how to describe it except to say it looked like uh, the carburetor out of the USS Enterprise in Star Trek. I mean, this thing was really futuristic, and uh, I joked about it being the carburetor out of the, uh, uh, like I said, out of the Enterprise. I had no idea what it was. 
so I didn't bid on it in the auction. But I watched these two guys out of about 200 people there got into a bid war on this particular item. And they went back and forth $10 at a time until they got up to $200. And then the one guy bid $300 and the other guy just dropped out. So I went up to this fellow that bought this futuristic looking carburetor thing. Uh, and I didn't really think it was a carburetor. It was just a joke I made. So I went up to him and I said, excuse me, sir, you know, I'm brand new at these auctions. And uh, if you don't mind telling me, I, I looked at that device. I picked it up and looked at it, and, but I had no idea what it was. And you seem to know what it is. And uh, I said, would you mind telling me what this actually is? And the fellow looked at me and smiled real big. He says, well, no. He says, I don't mind telling you at all. He said, this is a brand new carburetor out of an F-16 fighter plane that wasn't supposed to go in the auction. But once it was in there, they couldn't take it out. He says, I had it sold before the auction even started for $140,000 back to the government. He sold it back to the government for $140,000, and he paid three hundred for it. If he wasn't telling you a story, I don't know. That's Well, maybe because the government would have to have it back, maybe. Well, yeah, it's brand new. Uh, it, actually, it actually, they were saving money by buying it back because it would cost the government more to have a new one manufactured. That's weird. That is so, weird. So there were, there were things like, you know, things like that get into the government auctions. But again, you have to know what you're bidding on. Uh, uh, and, and when you get into auctions, you know, you can really lose money fast. Uh, on one auction, there were all these government computers. And I watched this guy get into a bid war with another guy. And he bought 300 of these computers. And uh, I marveled, you know, he, he bid, he bought them for $35 a piece. And he was all proud of himself for getting these computers uh, for $35 a piece. So I asked him, I said, uh, uh, you must have these sold or something. You bought the, the whole 300. Well, I was there loading up some, some, uh, metal desks that I had bought. Uh, and he was, I bought them for $10 a piece and they were really nice desks, uh, government issue. And he was loading, he had, he had to go rent uh, a U-Haul truck to haul all these computers. So he's loading up all these computers. And I said, uh, boy, I said, you must have all these computers pre-sold. I said, you know, to, to buy so many guys said, Oh no. He says, but I figure they got to be worth $50 a piece to somebody. So he paid 35 a piece for them. And another guy who was loading up some stuff, as soon as he was out of earshot, told me, he says, he says, those computers have about $10 worth of gold in them. And he says, that's their total value. He's going to lose $25 a computer if he figures out that he can sell them for the gold. So he yeah, bought three that's... of these. He's going to lose... 300 times 25. Wow. You know, so that's why the auctions, 
can be hazardous to your health, your financial health, as far as finding treasure. It's not that you can't. It's just that it requires uh, some expertise and some experience. You know, and the best thing to do is go and watch and talk to the guys that look like they're, they know what they're doing and they're making money on the auctions. If they keep coming back to the auctions, then they're doing all right. And those are the ones, if they're willing, that can teach. Yeah, you can do really good. I will say I've never been to an auction where guns or coins have sold for any reason. You really got to watch auctions. Um, you know, you think it's an auction, things are going to go cheap. But I can tell you for a fact that there are people who will overpay for stuff. They will bid it up and overpay uh, for things that, that are ridiculous. Uh, guns and, and coins are very hard to find at an auction, in my experience. Um, but there are deals to ha- to be had, and especially at the end of the day, when ever, the crowds are dwindling down, everybody spent their money, I've seen boxes of stuff go for pennies on the dollar, um, you know, big piles of boxes and you look in there and you see something worth $5 and that's it on the top of this big box. And when you, you know, it's worth five bucks and the whole box goes for a dollar. Now there might not be, heck the rest of it might be all trash down there, or there could be something worth a hundred or 200 or $300. Um, it's really incredible. You know, I told you about buying all those Mason jars. I bought a truckload of books one time there. There was, uh, at the fairgrounds, there was, um, uh, uh, this huge auction. I I believe they had three auctioneers going and everything, every, everywhere you turned, everything seemed to be going really high. And I was just kind of walking around and, this auctioneer went over to the, these, uh, I think there were, if I remember right, three hay wagons, two or three full of boxes of books. And there were probably five or six people standing around there. The, the auction started going, and the first box, they bid it up so much. And, that, you know, whoever won the bid got to pick the box they wanted. Well, after this happened three or four times, a bo- you might get a box for a dollar or 50 cents. And I may got to where you buy five boxes for a dollar. And, and I don't know what I paid. If I remember right, it was something, something like $12 and I got tons and tons of books. Uh, there were some 1800, 1800s books, including a Bible from, early 1800s that I put on eBay. I didn't know how to sell it other than eBay. Uh, Figured, you know, eBay's real good about telling you what something's worth. If you post it right, it's going to, you're going to get pretty fair market usually. And it sold for a hundred and some dollars. That one single book, you know, so auctions, auctions, they're, they're iffy and you got to be really careful. But, uh, Boy, you, you hit you hit the right one or the right time, and it's it can be amazing. My brother was so upset with me one time. This uh, beautiful big wood burning stove, and I think it went for like twelve dollars or something. And 
my whole thing was I was there by well I was there with my my uh, sister in law, and I thought how am I going to get that thing loaded up in my truck? I mean it was an old you know big heavy, and uh, but you know that thing was worth big money, um, you know a nice good working old old one like that. So, but like I said, I've seen guns and coins go for higher than you go buy you know coins that you could go buy at a coin shop going higher than. Than um than they than they ever should it's it's crazy so you got to be careful you do have to be careful that's true and you know uh, there's another way to treasure hunt uh, give you an example it can be something that you need uh, I needed uh, I needed a little hand winch to mount on my ten foot trailer that I could uh, winch uh, my in that we're going to use to go magnet fishing in. And we have a new Harbor Freight store. I think everybody's heard of Harbor Freight. And, you know, they have a lot of junk, uh, quite frankly. But sometimes they have some really nice quality stuff at a great price. And uh, so I went looking for a hand winch. Didn't need too much quality, you know, just something that would suffice. And I bought a, a hand winch there for $30. And when I opened it up, it turned out to be about three times nicer than I expected. Turned out to be heavy duty, quality made. Uh, I had a friend of mine who's an expert on stuff like that. I uh, had him welded onto the corner of the trailer for me. And he just kept raving about it. He said, man, this is a great winch. You know, what'd you have to pay for this? I said, $35, you know, a tax. And he said, that's a great price. He said, this is a quality piece of equipment. And I thought, well, see there, uh, if you're a careful shopper, you can go into a junk store and find bargains on really good stuff. But it's not going to be everything on the shelf. It's going to be an item here, an item there, an item over here on the on. The other side of the store, you know, it's, that's just the way it's going to be. But to me, if you go in and find what you're looking for at a great price and it works for you, well, you you, you have, in, in a sense, been a successful treasure hunter that day. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. But are you, are you ready to wrap it up? Do you think we covered yeah. everything, Dorian? I think so. Unless anybody's got any questions uh, or anything else they'd like to. Of course, if you're out there and you got a question, uh, absolutely. absolutely. I haven't been. I don't see anything going on much. I mean, I see a lot of good conversation, but. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think we can wrap it up. If anybody has a question, go ahead and ask it. Or if you got a comment or something for us, let us know. My kid is being loud. I don't know if anybody can hear that in the background, but hopefully not. Yeah, I can't hear it. Well, you know, we've, uh, I think we at least made a point that, uh, absolutely. If you put your thinking cap on, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> look around you. And, you know, different areas of the country, different opportunities for treasure. Uh, you know, for example, there's no place here close. Actually, there is. I guess the Ohio River has some flower gold in it from the glaciers. But uh, as far as finding gold nuggets and stuff, 
you know, the closest place that I know of where you could really do good is South Carolina. If I lived in South Carolina, I'll guarantee you a, a fair portion of my treasure hunting time would be spent on looking for gold nuggets because almost every stream in South Carolina uh, has color in it, has gold in it. Uh, and that includes also, uh, it, it laps over into Southern North Carolina. That's the gold belt, what they call the Allegheny gold belt. But, uh, you know, the point is I don't focus on gold because I have to drive so far to get to the places where it could be profitable for me. You know, so I focus on the opportunities in my area. You know, what can I do in my area? You know, well, there's, there's about six or seven different types of treasure hunting that I can do here and have a chance of doing well. Now, three or four times a year, maybe a little more, I may go out, I may go to Arkansas, or I may go back to you know, someplace where I have uh, a chance to maybe really hit it big. And uh, I'll take those risks and do a few trips. Uh, because getting out and going to another completely different geographical area and doing some treasure hunting, you'll be amazed. You'll come back to your area, and it's like uh, – it's like it resets your mind and you start to see your own area more clearly and you come up with better ideas on where to hunt, things like that. So, you know, I, I do recommend people try to get out, get out of their home territory and take a trip two or three, four times a year uh, to somebody else's territory and do a different type of metal detecting, you know, different type of terrain, uh, that type of thing. Uh or whatever type of treasure hunting you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great advice. Great advice. So. Well, anyway, somebody on down the road is going to come back and tell us, hey, guys, you really got me thinking about treasure hunting without a metal detector. Let me tell you what I was able to find, what I did, and what happened. Yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? There's treasure everywhere. If you look, you know what to look for. You know how to go about it. There's, there's literally treasure everywhere. Absolutely. So, okay. I don't see any questions ring. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. Alrighty. Dorian, thank you so much. Great show. Absolutely. Fantastic show. And thank you to all the listeners for tuning in. Good night, Dorian. Okay, good night, everybody. Good night. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.